So what has to change and the disruption that that we see is that you really have to stop investing in every customer. As much as everyone wants to be customer centric, not every customer needs that phone call or needs that meeting every two weeks. And some of them are actually annoyed by it. And what's more important to get really good at is spotting the outliers, both on the risk side and on the growth side. Because if you can have the instrumentation and get an understanding of the outliers that are at outsized risk for churn and the outliers that are at outsized risk for, not risk, but have the opportunity to grow, and you over-invest in those and invest less in the rest of your base, you'll be able to do it with less resources and you'll actually get better revenue outcome. Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with arrows in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today, we have an exceptional guest who's reshaping the customer experience landscape. In a minute, you will meet the founder and CEO of a cutting-edge customer revenue platform. Now, what sets him apart is his passion for making customer experience more revenue-focused through an innovative outlier model that combines customer revenue data. All right, I promise you're going to find out what this means. In the competitive world of SaaS, where revenue retention is crucial, this guy recognized the need for change as the industry matured. He saw the challenges of growth in tough markets, inefficient scaling, and increasing capital demands, all while battling churn rates as high as 15 to 20%. Huge. Now, while traditional SaaS sales often focuses on acquiring new customers, this disruptor had a visionary focus on customer retention. Now, his journey is unconventional, I have to say. He ventured into hip-hop, and he's going to tell us all about this, before a surprising shift into technology. Fast forward, as the global head of customer success at MuleSoft, his curiosity led to the creation of a system to track revenue data from existing customers. Oh my gosh, how did he do this? So, here we go. Live from Honolulu, Hawaii, Britton Grimes, the founder of Reef AI. Brenton, welcome. So happy to be here, KJ. Can't wait to dig into the conversation. Awesome. Okay, Brenton. So Brent, Brenton, I love the name Brenton. Before we get going, I want to hear all the good, the bad, the ugly SaaS, how it's matured, where the problems are. It's such a huge industry now, right? But tell the audience, what's your main ingredient for disruptive innovation? Yeah, the ingredient really has been something that's steered a lot of decisions in my life, including my my journey into uh, into hip-hop, which we'll get into in a minute. <laughs> I can't wait. But I do have this life philosophy of just take the first step. 
I think when you're inspired by something or you have an idea, it's really easy to talk yourself out of it or to doubt or think of all the reasons that it won't succeed. And I've learned that if you take the first step, you don't have to know exactly how it's going to go or what the full plan is. But if you're convicted in something and you just take the first step, the road will open up in front of you and you'll be surprised at the path that it will create and the options that will open up in front of you. And then you just keep taking the next step. And before you know it, you're well down the path and you've started to either realize, wow, this is really going to turn into something or you realize, hey, this this wasn't the right path and I can course correct and do something else, right? But if you don't take that first step, you'll you'll never know. So like having the, the courage to take that leap of faith has just served me really well throughout my life. You know, I, I actually really love that because it takes someone that's extremely brave and courageous and has, I think, a great deal of confidence in him or herself. Because, you know, like the fear of the unknown is a huge fear for people, right? And you can't predict out everything. Of course, you can have your own ideas and postulates of what you want, but you have to be willing to, you know, see what's in front of you and decide if that's what you want or not, right? Yeah, I completely agree. I think that developing that resilience and just refusal to be denied is, is it's hard, but it really is just like that persistence, you know, I think more than more than being aggressive or even being the best all the time, that persistence and the willingness just to keep going is a really big part of success. You know, I totally agree with that. And persistence really indicates so many things like how much life the person has, how much passion, what's their mission, what they believe in. Like you mentioned conviction, right? Yeah. So let's talk about your conviction now in the SaaS industry. Give me a little history of SaaS for our listeners. I've been doing research. I mean, our, (laughs) our clients are a lot of SaaS companies, right? I mean, the total addressable market is huge, right? It's blown up, Yep. but give me a little history of the SaaS market, how it's like evolved, what's the status quo now, and what are the biggest challenges that they're running into? Sure. So, you know, through the the 90s, you know, the late 90s or into the early 2000s, software was primarily sold as a license. You'd buy it up front, you'd pay, and you'd hope that it go well. It would go well. The vendor didn't really have to care that much about how successful it was or how you did because they got their money up front and maybe they'd want to sell you something in the future. So there was some incentive, but they really didn't have a strong incentive to take close care of you after that sale. And then when SaaS came along early 2000s, you know, pioneers like Salesforce and others really shifted that revenue model and say, look, instead of paying for all of this software up front and writing a huge check, we're going to let you subscribe to our software You don't have to install it on your own servers. We're going to run the servers for you and you can just pay as you go. And so as an economic model, it was much more favorable because it was a much lower risk up front. People didn't have to invest in the infrastructure as well. And then they could keep going if it was working or they could move on if it wasn't. So it was a much more balanced model between the, the vendor and the buyer. Well, SaaS has really exploded because it was a, you know, a, a more customer friendly a much more inviting model, it's really taken off in the market. And it's now the predominant way that that companies buy software and even, even consumers, right? I can't count the number of subscriptions. I don't even remember that I'm paying for now. Right? <laughs> I know. So Just look at LastPass. LastPass will tell you. <laughs> exactly. 
So um, with this model now came new demands for companies to start taking better care of their customers and keeping track of how they're doing and making sure that they're satisfied with their experience so that that when that contract comes up for renewal, that customer renews and they can keep the revenue stream going. Because the trade-off in this business model is that instead of making that money up front, you have to make that money over a longer period of time. So if a customer signs up for a year and then they move on, that's a losing proposition for the, the software company selling that product. They really need to keep that customer year after year to make the economics work in that model. And, you know, I have to say, like, keeping them it has a lot to do with their uh, use of it, you know, and their compliance, right? Which is, like, I don't know the attrition rate or, you know, the percentage of customers that don't fully use or use it well enough or don't get onboarded well. You know, I do have some data about the onboarding, which sucks, sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> we had another disruptor on that particular phase of SaaS and so forth. Yeah. But, you know, that is a huge issue in people feeling successful enough to stay with something. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that, you know, prior to SaaS, shelfware was a, was a huge problem. These companies would, would buy something and never either have the skills to, to deploy it or the time or the, you know, the motivation to follow all the way through. And with SaaS, it's a little bit better because you have somebody guiding you th through that process. But just because you buy a certain number of users doesn't mean that you deploy them all and, or that you buy a certain amount of capacity doesn't mean that you utilize it all. So it's really important that, the SaaS vendor has an understanding of exactly, you know, what they've sold the customer, what's been deployed, how that's trending over the life of that contract so that they can have an understanding of, is the company actually getting what they paid for? If not, it's going to be a really difficult discussion at the time of renewal, and they're likely going to churn, at least churn value, if not churn the whole customer. Yeah. And this like churn, it's escalated as high as 20% now. Is that still holding or is it even higher? Yeah, I think especially in this macroeconomic climate and the, and the downturn, um, every company is scrutinizing every penny right now. Mm -hmm. And anything that's not mission critical, they're cutting back, they're, they're not signing new contracts, they're um, at time of renewal, really looking at what they're using and what they're not using. So, you know, when there was frothy times a couple of years ago, uh, companies didn't worry that much about, okay, well, we're not using everything, but we're happy enough, so we'll keep it going. Now they're really looking for anywhere to cut costs. So there's been a, you know, there's been on average a more than 8%, you know, increase in the average churn rate for companies, much higher in others, like you said, up to up to 20% in others. And, you know, for certain solutions that were you know, maybe proving to be nice to haves versus mission critical, it, it's even worse, right? So I think that it's more important than ever to really be in tune with um, which customers are struggling on your platform, you know, what the, what those outliers are, or which customers are thriving, and really be thoughtful about the way you approach those customers, and not just at the renewal cycle, but well in advance uh, to make sure that you're making your investments in the right places. That seems so logical. <laughs> and as I know, working with so many disruptors, a lot of the solutions are extremely logical and people think that's already being done. So tell me why this hasn't been being done. Yeah, it's logical, but it's also a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because as SaaS was being created, there really wasn't a best practice customer management model. It had to be created on the fly. 
So what was adopted was something that was very similar to a, a sales process, which is, okay, we have stages that we need to take this customer through and we need to manage their journey. And we need to make sure we cover every customer so that nothing falls through the cracks and we can make sure that these customers stay on track and that we can renew them at a high rate. And if there's lots of capital available and companies can overspend, then you can hire lots of resources to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks. So the model works okay in good times or at small scale, but when you really try to scale up or when times get tight like now, you can't afford to invest in every customer and you have to get smarter about the way that you allocate resources. And this is where a lot of companies are struggling now because they've really built their businesses and built their processes around trying to make sure customers don't fall through the cracks. And but all the customers, like this is where customer yeah. experience gets expensive. It's such a cost center. Exactly. So you're investing in every customer, trying to make sure that things are going okay. So you're scheduling checkpoints every two weeks, or you're scheduling QBRs every quarter with every customer. And and that model is just not scalable. And, and this market, it's just not, not, it's just not viable. So what has to change and the disruption that that we see is that you really have to stop investing in every customer. As much as everyone wants to be customer centric, not every customer needs that phone call or needs that meeting every two weeks. And some of them are actually annoyed by it. And so what you what's more important to get really good at is spotting the outliers, both on the risk side and on the growth side. Because if you can have the instrumentation and get an understanding of the, out, the outliers that are at outsized risk for churn and the outliers that are at outsized risk for, not risk, but have the opportunity to grow, and you over-invest in those and invest less in the rest of your base, you'll be able to do it with less resources and you'll actually get better revenue outcomes. We proved this at when I was at MuleSoft. So prior to starting Reef, I was at MuleSoft for seven years. We built and led the customer success organization from scratch. And we were our mission was growing our net retention, right? And I realized as we were scaling, we were a fast scaling company. And I realized this along the way, we can't cover every customer. So we've got to stop trying. And we tried um, over the years to figure out how to get better at, at serving these customers. And we finally broke through. So we pulled a bunch of, of data related to our customers. We aggregated that data. We built initially just a manual regression model. We eventually were able to apply machine learning, but it allowed us to identify these outliers, these cohorts of customers that we knew were a better investment of time and resource than other customers. So we shifted our whole customer coverage operating model around this outlier model. And we over-invested in the outliers and we gave the team permission to stop doing a lot of the rote busy work, keeping the lights on coverage with customers. And it had a dramatic impact on the business. With less resources, we were able to reignite our growth rate and drive our net retention over 12 points in a, in a period of about 18 months. Wow. Was that, you know, I was just going to ask you about MuleSoft and you went right into it. So was it painful at first? Oh yeah. We got a lot of things wrong before we, before we figured <laughs> yeah, it out. So, you know, our listeners really like to hear about that. They love to hear about the successes, but a right. lot of pioneers, we have arrows in our backs yep. and we F up. Right. And when you're trying something new, listen, in any research lab model, whatever, 22% of whatever you do is going to work. There's yep. that other, yep. you know, 88 or whatever percentage, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So 
so what are some of the things that you know you had like that messed up that you had to like fix i mean because the way we approached it was the way that most people approach it is we we were bought into this linear customer lifecycle model where you try to cover every customer and so our first approach was well we just need better tools or we don't we need better software to cover these customers right so we went and bought some off-the-shelf software and deployed it and what we found was it created a lot of activity it made our team very very busy but it didn't do anything to improve our performance or really solve our core problem which is we don't have enough resource to go around so how can we be confident that our people are spending their time in the right places and what we did is we spent time with the squeaky wheel customers or we spent time with the customers that we liked, but not necessarily the ones that really needed us the most. <laughs> right. Um, so I think we were mistaking being busy for actually doing the right things, right? So everybody, you know, everybody was working hard. We had a really phenomenal team, you know, smart, motivated, willing to do anything for their customers, but they were just, they were just uh, drowning. They were overwhelmed. And we just, we couldn't, you know, we tried a couple times. We tried to roll out this system and we did a whole recalibration and we rolled it out again and we thought we were going to get it right the second time. And the same thing happened. People just rejected it because, you know, they would get activities assigned to them automatically for too many customers. And it would create what I call the graveyard of guilt, which is all of these assigned but uncompleted tasks that just pile up and pile up and make people feel bad, even though they're working really hard you know, to support their customers. So gosh, the graveyard of guilt. Can we get a mic drop on that one? <laughs> I'm going to make an infographic here. That's so true. true. It's yeah. so true. So we, 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 you know, mired down this path for a while. And then we realized like, this is, this is not working. We have to, we have to change it. And this is where we, you know, launched this initiative. So we were also really big on internal innovation. So we encouraged people to come forward with ideas and to pull together small teams to try out things. And then we'd actually formally twice a year get together as a full team and people would pitch their ideas. And we'd agree as a as a as a group to invest in the ones that we thought were the best ideas. And then people would have a chance to go independently lead these initiatives. Right. And that was one of the, you know, this initiative was was one of those where Hey, we have a bunch of data about our customers. We could definitely put it to better use. And it's just not easy to aggregate that data. It's not always easy to do the analysis if, if you haven't done it before. And even once you can score your customers and do the analysis, it's not easy to operationalize and get people to make different decisions day to day about where they spent their time. So, mm-hmm. you know, it took us, it took us, uh, you know, probably three quarters to really test and tune and and get this going to a point where we were really willing to push it out to, to customer success leadership and sales leadership and say, look, we are going to create a special class of customer where we want people to invest differently. So that meant spending more time, that meant tracking data differently, that meant holding teams accountable differently. And that was really that shift in model for us. How long did that shift take to become grooved in and accepted and you know like used yeah i think the i think the key on the execution side was the buy-in of those frontline managers mm-hmm. because people are going to do what their managers expect them to do even if the big boss you know on the on the mountain is is screaming that something needs to be done 
So I, they're going to meet with their manager every week and really talk about what their priorities are. So we worked, you know, it took us a little time to figure this out, but what we figured out, okay, if we can get the buy-in of those frontline managers and really get them to week over week, ask their team questions about these customers, really ask about the data, ask about, okay, what are you doing with, with these, you know, these special customers to either mitigate risk or drive that outsized growth, then that was really going to be the key to the success of the program, right? And it really took, it took probably two quarters to build and reinforce those habits, but then it just became part of the way that we operated, right? And so by, by the third quarter, we saw our growth rate start to reaccelerate. So this was after we had gone public prior to the Salesforce acquisition. We saw, you know, we our growth rate had, had kind of plateaued and we saw our growth rate start to reaccelerate. We saw our net retention rate start to climb again. And it really did that steadily over the over the next few quarters because you know we initially we scored customers. This the scoring model wasn't perfect, right? But it was directionally correct. And that's the cool thing about this model is. You don't have to be precise as long as you're directionally correct and pointing people in a direction where maybe they make two or three decisions a week that is better than they would have done before about where they spend their time. That's okay because if everybody is doing that across the team, the water level is going to rise and you're going to get a better outcome. And that's what we saw. Yeah, that's awesome. So what happened to the graveyard of guilt? <laughs> we <laughs> we buried it deep <laughs> under the ground. <laughs> nice. Never thought about it again. Nice. You know, as you're saying this, it seems to me like the sales teams, the revenue teams would be the hardest to buy into this because they have an idea. I mean, in one aspect, they probably would be the number one adopters of this. I would think first adopters. But in other aspects of this, they might be late adopters because they can have very fixed ideas as to which customers need to be followed up on, right? What was it? Yeah, yeah, I know it's absolutely true. And I think they are a, they are a tough audience to win over. And I think the other part of our message and the model is, look, we're going to point you in the right direction, but we're not going to be right every time. There may be context that you have about a customer that didn't show up in the data that would invalidate them as a target for one reason or another, especially on the growth side. Like, look, there's no way this customer is going to grow because I know they're mad about something that, you know, and maybe it's not showing up in the data, right? So I think it's important to acknowledge that up front. So the success is not about being right every time, but it's about being right enough times that you get a better outcome. And again, like I said, that water yeah. level. So I think the more that you can own that up front and make sure that there's an opportunity for the human in the loop to be part of that final decision-making process, then you can earn the trust and you can say, look, we're going to feed this up and we know more times than not, this is going to be right, but not every time. So if you have a good reason that this doesn't make sense, raise your hand, you know, flag it in the system, let your manager know, and we'll 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 move on, right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna force it. And I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, that's really important. You have automation and you have things like that, but it's not supposed to take a place of, you know, human judgment, right? <laughs> like yeah. so important. So, all right. So how did you get to MuleSoft from hip hop? We're going backwards here. <laughs> <laughs> and then I want to find out how you got into hip hop. But Okay, no. okay, for sure. So my path, well, I probably um it's probably easier to tell the story if I go all the way back and start with hip hop and then um yeah, totally talk about the tra- talk about the transition <laughs> to technology. So I was one of those startup founders that was a college dropout. <laughs> famously <Love it. laughs> i did i did finish college but so i grew up in texas 
And um, my home state, by the way. Oh, very nice. And so I was in, I went to college um, in Texas and, you know, growing up in high school and even into college, I was, I always felt like, okay, I, I'm not unhappy here, but I think there's more for me out in the world than, than kind of what I've experienced so far. And I always had this, this wanderlust and, and I knew there was something bigger on the horizon. So when I got to college, I, um, ended up meeting some friends, you know, I was already into, uh, I was already into hip hop music. And so, you know, in my youth, my, my dad was an attorney and he was a bit of a crusader and county we were in was famous for, you know, putting juveniles in, in, in big person jail. And, and my dad wasn't a fan of that. So he would regularly be, bring people home to live with us, to keep them out, to keep them out of the, uh, the adult jail. No so I, way. I love this. <laughs> I had a lot of diverse influences uh, growing up. So I got into hip hop at, at an early age and I had a lot of passion for it. And um, so when I went to college, you know, I made friends there and we all kind of shared this passion and there was just a different group of people I could connect with and kind of found my tribe. Right. And um, so then, you know, about halfway through, we're, we're like, you know, one spring break, we uh, we built a demo tape and we took a Amtrak ride from Texas to, to New York for spring break. <laughs> and we went and shopped our demo tape and we actually met a manager who was interested in in working with us and so we got we got pretty excited we said you know what let's just make a run at this so we packed up all our stuff we got on a u-haul truck and we moved from from texas to new york and in, in january in the middle of winter which is a terrible idea <laughs> especially but, texas heat right it makes an awesome story so long story short we got there i moved to brooklyn I'd never been to Brooklyn, so sight unseen, like moved into a brownstone in Brooklyn and started life in New York. So just through making connections there, I ended up getting an internship at Def Jam Records. So worked and worked in Def Jam in the in the early 90s. And, you know, I think the the golden age of, of hip hop and in my mind and got so to. So cool. Yes, it was the golden age of hip hop, wasn't it? For sure. For yeah. sure. So you so you were an intern at Def Jam and then what happened? Yeah. So I was working in AR and so I got to meet lots of artists and I even um got to road manage a little bit. That's another story, but I ended up having <laughs> I got to road manage, but only if I could would could figure out a way to fly under a ticket that had been purchased under somebody else's name. So <laughs> luckily it was pre-9-11 and it was pretty easy to get to get uh, identification in New York. So I did manage to fly from New York to Atlanta under somebody else's name. In hindsight, <laughs> probably not a good decision, but uh, I think the statute of limitations are up on that one. Oh my God. Just take the first step. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it actually worked out really well. So I got a lot of good life experience in that. But what happened on the, the technology front is I ended up actually finishing school. So as I was working there, I was going to school in New York, finishing my degree in tech. And so there I met the person that ran their whole web presence in, in IT, and he realized I had some computer skills. And so he's like, hey, you can make a lot more money working for me than than what you're making you know, as an intern in, in A&R. And so then I uh, decided to jump over to the the IT side. So we, you know, ran the web presence, did all the networking for um, for Def Jam and Fat Farm and all the other you know, related properties. And that's where I really kind of built that initial skill set that launched my journey into tech. So interesting! I absolutely love it. Yeah, I, I totally have to hear about this. Uh, 
thing of getting alternate identities. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about Reef AI. So now you started Reef AI, you got seed funding um, just in April of this year. Is that right? Yeah, we closed, closed. I think, yeah, March, April of this year. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're really excited about it, especially, you know, in hindsight, I think we closed at a really good time because I know the markets, the mar- the financing market's gotten even, you know, even tougher since then, for sure. Yeah. So tell me about your ideal customer profile. Tell me how you help them, you know, and tell me the biggest thing like that our listeners should look out for and why they should care about. I mean, they know why they should care about net, <laughs> net revenue retention, right? But yep. how this outlier model that you developed would help them with this that's perfect crazy market no happy to happy to connect the dots there so um so with reef our ideal customer is a customer that has a meaningful number of customers and meaningful customer revenue right so you know if you're under 100 customers you probably have a pretty good sense of what's going on with those customers, right? But as you get into multiple hundreds and thousands of customers, you just can't keep your arms around customers and you really need help to kind of identify those outliers. And then on the revenue side, again, as you build a recurring revenue base, that becomes over time, the majority of your revenue as a SaaS company, right? So if you have a meaningful amount of revenue either to retain or you really care about growing those existing customers and driving that net retention up, that's a really good time to engage Reef. Prior to that, we can still be helpful, but I'd say it's more of a nice to have. As you get to that scale, it's really a must have, and we can really make a difference in terms of net retention performance, in terms of revenue growth with existing customers, churn, et cetera. And then the way that this ties to the outlier model is this, right? A lot of companies, have pretty good processes in place for onboarding customers, for renewing customers. So the outlier model is not about disrupting those standard processes because even you can't just renew the outliers. You have to renew all your customers, right? So you can't really you can't really apply it to that renewal cycle specific, specifically. But the truth is, if you're having a discussion at time of renewal, it's too late in most cases to change the outcome, right? If you're just getting to a customer that's been struggling and you're starting to talk about renewal, like you really, it's, it's too late to change the trajectory or to get a different outcome with that customer. So where the outlier model becomes much more valuable, and this is the way that that customers are, are using us commonly today is like, let's not wait until renewal. Let's actually identify these outliers you know, depending on your business model, maybe six months in advance of that renewal, maybe nine months, right? Depending on how long it might take you to, to engage and change the outcome. But if we can spot these outliers, let's say six months prior to that renewal, and we know that there's some customers are struggling because of, you know, because of the analysis that Reef has done and the outliers that they've surfaced, let's actually go run a play into every one of those customers to get them more engaged, to get them going on new use cases to get them realizing value so that when we have that renewal discussion a quarter from now, they're going to be in a much better position and much less likely to churn value or churn altogether. Or on the flip side, on the growth side, let's spot those outliers who are outperforming in terms of their consumption rate or their trajectory or their success in the product because of the types of things that they're doing. So we can surface, identify those and spot those growth outliers. And with those, Instead of just waiting till the renewal and saying, hey, things seem to be going well. Do you want to do more with our software and getting some some small organic growth? 
you can actually be much more intentional and deterministic about shaping that growth, right? And so why not six months in advance, engage that customer, say, look, we've you've done some great things on our solution. Uh, we think there's a complementary product that could actually take take the value that you're realizing to the next level. So you can realize even more value or by increasing capacity, here's the business case on what you've done so far by increasing capacity by two X, here's what we think you can get in terms of ROI for the next phase of our partnership, right? So getting in again, being intentional, building a specific growth plan. And again, not doing it scattershot, but for these outliers, try it for everyone. And again, you won't win in every case, but you'll get enough of them that, you get a better outcome, you raise the water level, your net retention rises, and you get the benefits of this approach. That's where sales then loves you. Once their commission checks go up, then they are they are they are fully on board. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. So where do you see the future of SaaS going? So I think that I mean you're already seeing it in this latest market cycle, right? There is a a move, a shift from grow at all costs to we have to grow a healthy SaaS business and we have to improve margins and get to profitability along the way, right? A lot of companies have continued to be in that growth lane and drive really high valuations uh, without being profitable, right? And I think that at least for this next part of the economic cycle, there's going to be a real um, mandate for companies to improve margins, to at least approach profitability, if not become profitable and start creating lots of cash, right? And so I think with that change comes different resource allocation models, right? So this is one example. I think this is also happening in other areas of the business. But when you think about customer management resources, it's already happening, right? There's If you think about the layoffs that have happened over the last 18 months, yeah. Like customer success has been disproportionately affected. Some organizations have completely wiped out their entire customer success. I know. I mean, you read the feeds on LinkedIn and they're just overworked, the ones that are left. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, yeah. No, that's a really good point. So it's not sustainable, right? So companies are going to be forced to make these hard trade-off decisions about where they invest and where they don't. And if they don't have the tools to do it effectively or in an intentional way, then it is going to affect results. It's go, you're going to get more churn. You're going to get slower growth. You're going to get, you know, worse net retention. And, you know, maybe for a couple quarters, you can say, well, it's the economy. We can brush it off because it's happening to every company. It's not just us. But eventually there will be a reckoning and companies will have to improve and they'll have to show growth again. And it's going to come, it's not going to come slowly. It's going to come quickly where investors and the market will demand that, okay, You've had your chance to make your cuts. You've had your chance to reorient your business. Now we want to start to see progress again, right? And that's where I think if companies are assertive and start to think about how they utilize data, how they identify outliers, how they invest in this model, they can stay ahead of that curve. If not, it's going to be a really, a really choppy ride. Really, really good point. It is going to come sooner than they think or quicker than yeah. they think. Always, yeah. Always yeah. Okay. So... What do you do outside of Reef AI? Like, what are your crazy passions? Are you still in like to hip hop? What do you do? Do you still yeah. make demo reels? That's what I, I want. My my playlist is still very much or very much stuck in the stuck in the nineties. Yeah. Um, I got to admit that I do. So, in continuing my leaps of faith, so I moved to to Hawaii with my family. 
about eight years ago. And again, the first three and a half years, I commuted weekly uh, to San Francisco and around the world. So there's a bit of a uh, lifestyle trade-off there, but uh, <laughs> never looked back and have really um, never second-guessed that decision because it's a great it's a great place to call home base for me now. So um, yeah, so I love the outdoors. I love to get in the water and swim and surf and just uh, be be one with nature. That's awesome. So how do people get a hold of you? Yeah. So find us online, reef.ai. It's pretty, pretty easy. Um, you can uh, find me on LinkedIn. So Brent Grimes or email me directly, brent at reef.ai. I'd love to start a chat. Even if, you know, even if you're not ready to buy something and you just want to talk shop around this outlier model or, you know, what we learned, I'm always happy to dig in and, and nerd out on, on customer experience. That's awesome. You know, that is what I absolutely love about disruptors is they are so willing to just communicate and help. Yeah, 100%. My favorite part of my job. (laughs) Nice. Okay, food for thought that you want to end our listeners on. Like, what should they be thinking about? Like, the crux of the story, the moral of the fable. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to my first point about taking the first step, right? I think whether it's this outlier model, whether it's other things that you know in the back of your mind you need to change or you need to evolve to take your business where it needs to go, there's a million reasons to defer that decision. Our data is not good enough, or there's some things we need. We need to get our house in order before we're ready to take that step. I think that it's important not to delay, to really to really create the reason why you can take that first step now. You know, if there are hard barriers, what can you do to just find the minimal amount of barrier you can uh, reduce or get rid of to take that first step and actually start moving down the path? Because it does often take a little bit longer than you hope and the results may not come as fast, right? So if you start now, you really can get ahead and take your business where it needs to go, right? So I think my philosophy in life applies very much to the business sphere, which is like, look, if you feel like you need to to drive your your part of the business in a different direction, don't wait, take that first step and the road will open up in front of you. Awesome piece of advice. You should write a book all the time (laughs) you took that first step. (laughs) In my spare time, absolutely. Yes, right? (laughs) <laughs> Brenton, thank you so much. This has been very informative and I'm sure our listeners will think so too. Thanks, KJ. I had a great time. You bet. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from the show. Thanks for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.